Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Okay, friends, we're just going to jump in here. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are excited to have Dr. Johnny Schnitzer back, and we're excited to partner with Orzion today and see so many other great folks here. So um, with that, I'm going to pass it over to uh, Andre Ivory, our partner at Orzion, who's going to introduce our speaker today uh, and for our topic, the prayer book. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Shmuley. Thank you for uh, partnering with us on this uh, wonderful opportunity uh, Dr. Johnny Schnitzer is probably the only PhD in, in Jewish philosophy focusing on medieval Kabbalah who can say that he once beat the head of the Israeli uh, naval commandos in a swimming race. His dissertation <laughs> focused on the scientific uh, uh, Kabbalah of Rabbi Joseph bin Shalom Ashkenazi. Johnny's forthcoming book is about Ashkenazi's Kabbalah as well as a critical uh, um, edition of the Kabbalist Majestic Commentary on Sefer Yesirah. Johnny's also the author of, Mo of the Mossad thriller, The Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny also orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, an important piece of Moroccan Jewish history from the Holocaust. Johnny al has also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright Israel and executive manager of Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism and Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. Johnny is happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel, and thinks that Australian rules football. I kind of agree with that. That it, it maybe not the best sport, but it's also it's it's fascinating. I find it fascinating. Fascinating. Um, is the greatest sport ever invented. It's our pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Schnitzer, here this morning. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Andre. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's lovely to see all of you and see familiar faces again. Uh, I'm going to share my screen now. Um, okay, excellent. Right. Uh, so what we're going to try and do is a little bit, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but we need to sort of have, you know, set our expectations straight. Uh, you know, the, the the prayer book or prayer books, because there is no one prayer book, you know, these, these are huge things. And we're not really going to be able to go through in 45 minutes or the hour that we have the whole prayer book. What is our goal here? What do we want to achieve? Um, there are three things I'd like to touch upon. I'd like to touch upon what this book is, how it came about, how it came to life. When was its starting point? Has it always been around? Does everyone read the same things, different things? And we're going to, you know, go into a little bit of stories of Jewish history and how this came about. The second thing I'd like to focus on is to choose several prayers. What's their story? How did they enter in? You know, what happened to the Jewish people? What happened in certain points in history that all of a sudden new prayers pop in? what does that? And the third thing I'd like to focus on, you know, but because we don't just want to leave here with some, you know, intellectual journey to sort of, you know, it's, it's all very nice and great if we enrich ourselves, but you know what, if we could also try and get, you know, maybe the next time we go and open a prayer book, whether it's a study, whether it's to pray, to try and look at it in a different way, to try and, 
and, and, and, and meditate in a different way. And, you know, and the more we learn about something, you know, we, we, we were able to do that and we're fixated on that. I know it's the first, it's what happened to me the first time I really got into these texts. And, and you know what, if you ask me what I really like, you know, dream, what I wish would come as a result of, of the short time we're spending together, many times we have a curriculum. We decide what are we going to learn for the next month, for the next year? Uh, you know, what course are we going to have? You know, Jewish related, because that's what we're talking about. And the prayer book is usually the last thing that we choose. We go with Tanakh, we go with Bible, we go with Talmud, the mystics, the you know, the, the, the philosophers. When was the last time you thought, you know what? The prayer book, this is a great place to start because it has everything in it. It has, it has the ins and the outs and, and the history. And it's just that that's, that's, so that's what I hope that as a result of so the call to action, when we finish our time together, that we decide we really want to understand this book a little bit more. What is it? You know, why is it called in English a prayer book and in Hebrew a sidur? What is a sidur? What is compilation and order have to do with, with, with prayer book? But in order to start, uh, um, you know, I, today I spoke to my father and he says to me, you know, that I've never heard this before. He says that um, he came from a Hasidic background, but without the mitzvahs. So, and I guess that explains why we're going to start with a Hasidic story. And we're going to end with a Hasidic story, uh, both to do with prayer. The first one is the Baal Shem Tov. It is a very enigmatic story. I wanted to say it off. You know, that there are two kinds of Hasidic stories. There are stories that are meant to be read. You're meant to see the words. Rabbi Nachman was very much into this. He wanted you to see the words, read word for word, think about them, decipher them. And there are other stories that you're meant to hear. And, and they're meant to evolve as storytellers tell them anew. But when I came across this story that we're about to read, this opening story, what the Baal Shem Tov has to teach us about prayer, I, I, I simply couldn't come and say it. We, we have to see the words. And as it is, I feel bad that it's in English and not in Hebrew, but because the... the, the it's it's a complex story, um, so so we're going to start with a story. We're going to we're going to end with a story with Rabbi Nachman, which is going to hopefully um, not erase, but it's going to disrupt everything we've done in, in our time together. Okay, so we're going to end with perplexed. So let's start. Okay, so um, so we're told that in a certain town there was a craftsman who made felt socks. In Hebrew, it's Gervei or Puzmokaot, Gervei Leved. Leved is also alone, solitude, Levad. So the guy's making felt socks. This person would pray regularly in the synagogue, come winter, come summer. If he found a quorum of prayers, he would pray in a quorum. And if not, he would pray alone by himself in solitude. Once the Baal Shem Tov stayed in an inn in this town. In the morning, while smoking his pipe before prayer, the Baal Shem Tov, the Besht, glanced out the window and saw the craftsman going to the synagogue as he did every day. The Besht was shaken to his core and said to the innkeeper, go out and see who this person is. Who, who, who is this person who just walked past in the street with a prayer shawl and phylacteries in his hand? When the innkeeper returned, he said, he's a craftsman and he went to synagogue. The Besht asked to call on the person to come to him. The innkeeper to which the innkeeper said, I know this person. He has unusual habits. He most certainly won't agree to come here. The Besht listened and remained silent. After, after prayer, the Besht sent a messenger to the craftsman and asked him to bring four pairs of socks. 
The man came and brought the socks. The Besht asked, a pair of socks, how much? Each pair is one and a half gold coins, said the craftsman. And if I ask that you sell me a pair for one gold coin, what would you agree, asked the Besht? The craftsman did not respond. The Besht asked another person that was there to haggle with the craftsman regarding the Besht's price. The person asked the craftsman, would you sell for less than one and a half gold coins? Had I wanted to sell for less, I'd have said so the first time, said the craftsman. The Besht paid the requested price and brought four and bought four pairs of felt socks. He then asked the craftsman, tell me, what do you do? I make a living from my craft, said the man. How so? asked the Balshemtov. Each time I make at least 40 or 50 pairs of socks and I place them in a, in a large tub with vinegar. By the way, in brackets, in another tradition of this story, there's no vinegar. It's just water. And it's interesting in Hebrew in terms of chometz or mine, but I'm putting that aside, adding to the complexities. So he's treading, you know, and, and there I tread the felt until the, until the socks are as they should be. Kitikunam, right? Like repair the world, tikunolam, the Hebrew here, look, it's lost in translation, and tell the socks, kitikunam. And how do you sell them? I don't leave my house, said the craftsman. Traders come to my home and buy from me what is ready, and they sell me wool from which I make the socks. Only to honor you did I leave my home especially to come here, for I, for I leave my home only to go to the synagogue. If I find there a quorum, I pray with them, and if not, I pray in solitude. And if you must marry off your son, asks the Besht, from where do you take money for that? The blessed God helps me with my craft and provides me with more than I and with more until I can marry off my sons. And when you wake up in the morning, what do you do? The best continued to inquire. Socks, replied the craftsman. And when do you say psalms? Whatever I can say by heart, I say, said the man. Now get this. This I read this. This is mind-boggling. Afterwards, the Baal Shem Tov said that this person is the foundation of the synagogue. The universe, every synagogue, until the coming of the Messiah. How great is a person who appropriately enjoys his labor? Now, what's going on here? Like, what is going on here? We we have this, you know. So, so the guy comes, he goes, he makes socks, he goes, he prays, he comes back. This is the foundation of synagogue. Now, why is this story so perplexing? I'm willing to bet. I'm not sure. I'm going to be a bit unfair here. I'm willing to bet that at least 50% of us have never heard this story before. I'm willing to make another bet. I'm willing to bet that there is another story relating to the Baal Shem Tov and prayer that most of us have heard. And what's that story? That on the high holidays, there was meant to be a chazan, right? The person leading the prayer, we're all, we know this story. He doesn't know the words. The words don't come out. So he whistles. You know, if he's saying this in the high holidays, not even allowed to whistle on Shabbos. And the Baal Shem Tov says, wow, this prayer is better than anyone's because it comes from the heart. So this is a story most of us know. From this Bet Midrash, from this study hall that we learn about the power of the core of prayer, that you don't even need words. We have this sort of very regular yeshiva-ish guy that comes and goes. He works, he prays, doesn't seem like there's something too special. He doesn't talk much, you know. And, and, and that's it for the Baal Shem. So I, I want us to think about this. I want us to sort of have this in the back of our minds. Let's let it marinate. Um, 
what are we going to think about this? And, and as we go along, does this story echo? When we go through how the how the prayer book came about, how different prayers came about, and, and, and trying to focus on how to meditate, how to ascend the ladder of prayer, a thing's going to come up. Are we, we going to go look back at this? Are we going to think back at this at this story, and perhaps get closer to what the Baal Shem Tov is trying to teach us here? Okay. So now let's start with the problem. When we come to talk about Right. So today, any synagogue you go into, you, you have a prayer book. It doesn't matter which prayer book you have. You know, it's either this size or it's half this size or double the size. It's either Hebrew, English, Hebrew, Arabic, Hebrew, Persian. doesn't matter. You have a book and it's a prayer book. It's a siddur. It's a compilation of prayers, of requests, of you know what, what we're meant to say. And in every place, you know, there are different versions. Here's the problem. This wasn't always the case. Get this. If you go and look into, you know, I was interested in the research, understanding what we know, what have researchers told us about prayer, the history of prayer? What, what did the first prayers look like? And guess what? We have no clue. And the reason we have no clue is because from the moment we were kicked out into exile, start of the Babylonian, Babylonian exile for a thousand years, get this, a thousand years, we have nothing. We have no written documentation, meaning we don't even have a thousand two hundred years later what was said a thousand uh, two hundred years early. We don't have that, that that period. We have nothing. Why? There is one sentence in the ocean of Talmud that that gives us, you know, a little peek into the culture of, of, of Jewish prayer. Those who write down prayers are like those who burn the Torah. Big no no. If you're living at the time, a bit after the temple, and you're in Israel, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai decides we need a reformation, we need something different, we need to, we've always prayed. There was prayer in the temple. We need to connect more with this. Don't you dare write it down. It is so intimate. It is so pure. Don't you dare put ink on paper. So we have nothing. And as a result, we have simply no idea, you know, it, 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 what do we know? We have the Talmud. So the same verse that tells us don't write down, tells us stories and tells us traditions, Talmudic traditions of what was. Now, it was so different. Let's take Shema Israel. Everyone here has heard, you know, there are certain keywords, buzzwords in the, in the prayer book that we've all heard. Shema, unfortunately, Kaddish. You know, there are others we've heard less. But Shema, we've heard. Shema Israel. Listen to Israel. Shema, you used to sit in a, in a, in a bet kinus, in a, in a house of gathering. What is a bet knesset? A bet knesset is not a house of prayer. It is a house of gathering. It is where Jews socialize. They gather together. First and foremost, bet knesset. Now, this is also, this is interesting. When we come and think of our craftsman, right? He's, He's going to, to, to be with others, but he's also alone. So, so it was a bet kinos. It was a house of gathering. How did Shema Israel go? It wasn't like the way we say it today. It wasn't like you say Shema Israel and Baruch Shem. It wasn't like that. You said Shema Israel. You know who said Shema Israel? Only one person. They'd always choose a different person. The person that anyone could do it. It was democratic. Anyone that was learned, that knew the verse. Not everyone had books. You didn't have books. You knew the verse and you knew how to say it. It's yours. If you said it wrong, oi vavoy, oi vavoy, because you're representing. 
And then after the person would say the one line of the, what becomes the banner of Judaism, Shema Israel, everyone would say amen. Okay. And in time, it becomes, no, no, this is something that we start to say. Take, for example, another story we hear in the Talmud, the 18 benedictions. We have, we'll touch upon this, the sort of, you know, the, the, our prayer book is this, is like this ladder. It begins with, with thanks and it moves on to praise. And then to requests, only then you can request. And then it closes in a very unique way that we will touch upon. So the 18 benedictions, the 18 blessings, kind of, you know, it's a climatic point. And that also wasn't said privately like we say it today. You know, we're used to thinking today. We live in a reality where prayer, you know, almost equates, you know, a moment of intimacy. We think of the prayer book and, you know, our intimate prayers, our quiet prayers. This wasn't the case. Jews sat together. Do you know how the 18 benedictions used to go? It was you had a ochazan, your leader. He'd say it aloud. Everyone said amen, and that's it. And then comes Rabban Gamliel and says, no, 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 no. Everyone's got to say it. Everyone's going to say it. And then we're going to have what we know today is the Chazarat shots, the going back. And so things evolved. And part of the problem, there's a lot of vagueness. We're not quite sure how these things, so, so Shema was like this, but then how did it become what it is in, in, in our text today? And why is it that the prayer of Shema is exactly like it is in every book, but other prayers aren't? How is it that in some books, certain prayers appear and in others, God forbid, God forbid, they're never going to appear. What's the difference? What makes or breaks a prayer that is in and a prayer that is out? So part of our problem is we have this you know, it's like in Sefer Yetzirah. Sefer Yetzirah, we're told that there are these ten spherot, you know, these 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 vessels which create everything, and they have, their foundation is blima. Their foundation is without nothing. It is it's a it's a paradox. But without nothing does not mean blima with nothing on nothing, but rather they stand upon something which is incomprehensible to us. We cannot understand its source. And the prayer book is very, very similar to that. It's, it's frustrating. We, we simply don't know. So now you might be asking yourself, okay, so when does the first this appear? When do we have our first manuscript, our first book that is actually written? How does this come about? And this happens in the ninth century. This is a long time. This is a long time ago, but it's a long time after Jews have been praying. So we're in the ninth century. We're in Babylon. We're in the yeshiva of Surah. There are two huge, right? There are only two places. It's like the Harvard of the yeshivas. If you want to get a good education in Babylon, you either go to Surah or you go to Pumpadita. And in Surah, the head of the yeshiva then, the sort of the dean of, of Surah, is, is Rav Amram Gaon. Like the, you know, uh, uh, Saadia Gaon. We have Amram Gaon. And I'm, I'm Ramgon, you know, we have a tradition of prayers. So we, and what you see, by the way, behind you is a beautiful 14th, 15th century manuscript of, of the, the, the Sidur, the Seder, the order of prayers that he compiles. Who does he compile it for? So we have a manuscript where we know that there was a letter written by the rabbinic, by the, the leading rabbis of the community of Barcelona. We know their names. They're writing to Rabbi Amram Gon and say, look, we pray, you pray, Jews pray. We don't know the order. Well, we know that, you know, in, in Catalonia, they say this, in Castilia, they say this, in Provence, they, we know that you have a tradition. We know that you're the Harvard of the yeshivas. Could you send us a manual? Could you send us the order 
the, the, and this is where Sidur comes from. This is where prayer book, right? It's a mistranslation in Hebrew, it's Sidur. It's the order. What is the order of the way we are meant to meditate to God? It's We're talking about order. So Rabbi Amram Gaon sits down and writes 200 pages of this is what we have. And this is what we have. And it's a tradition that goes back to Rav Ashi. Right? We're talking about the guys that are compiling the Babylonian Talmud. This is no joke. Their prayers, this is what I'm giving you now. And it starts with a certain prayer and it moves on with something else. Here's what's fascinating. When you look at Rav Amram's, at the, at the, at, at the Seder Rav Amram Gaon, the first thing you notice is that there are quite a few bits, large bits. You know, the, the order is, it's, it's, the, it's the skeletal st- structure of the prayer book that most of us are acquainted with. But then we notice, for example, there's one prayer that every prayer book begins with today. doesn't matter if you're from uh, South Africa, North Africa, from the East, from the West, doesn't matter where. There's one prayer that we all know, we all say it, we'll, we'll get there. doesn't appear in, in Seder of Ramon And there are other prayers that don't appear. So, so there are things that aren't there yet. That's what's, that's what's cool about this text. It's sort of freezing a moment in history where we know where we stand. What's another interesting thing? You know how today we have TikTok, right? Today we have the, the attention span of, of, you know, two seconds. We used to have, we used to watch movies. We used to watch Casablanca. We used to remember the sentences, you know, that, that, that after an epic movie, it turns out prayer is the same. If you look at the 18 benedictions and the blessings before Shema in Seder Amram Gaon, they're much longer. I brought you here on the right. It's blurred, but it's, it's one of the benedictions to do with blessing, you know, requesting rainfall that we have an abundance of rainfall. And just by looking at the length of it, it's three times the size of what we say today. So we notice the things that, that he sent. We know that by the Barcelonian community sending him a request implies, we, we, we don't, you know, there are a lot of different versions. We understand this is super important. Can you please help us? And he sends something, which then reaches Rashi. It reaches Maimonides. It creates a ripple effect. And you know, but it but it takes time. And even when it takes time, other people have their own traditions, as we'll we'll get to in a moment. And then the plot thickens even more. Even after said there Ravamram gone, right? We're talking about a time before the age of print. Not everyone gets these manuscripts. You know, it, it simply doesn't happen. It takes time until someone copies a manuscript, sends a manuscript. What about a copyist who's a chuchum? A smart, intelligent copyist that says, you know what? Out of a moment of inspiration, I added another prayer. Things change. Manuscripts are like people. There is no two that are alike. So, so once, once this is the case, everyone's saying different things to the point where, in the remember, again, in brackets, today we live in a day and age where we have a written book, we have translations, we have commentaries. Ninth century is the first time Someone, the, 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 you know, the, the big boss writes, this is what we're meant to say. It doesn't get everywhere. And then it's going to take another 300, 400 years until the first commentary on the prayer book is written. And this happens in Spain with Rabbi David Abudrum. This is our next moment in this sort of opening segment of understanding what, what a prayer book is. And what is Abudrum's problem? Abudrum. So he's gotten the Seder Amram Gaon. He knows what people are saying, but he has, so he writes a book, which is a compilation 
uh, of, you know, it's explaining the different prayers. And you know why he does this? I haven't brought this, but he says in a different passage, he says, you will not find, you, you know, you can quote him on this. You will not, uh, there is not a single synagogue that says the exact same prayers as even its neighboring synagogue. There are no two alike. Forget about it. It doesn't exist. Not only that, Jews don't understand what they're saying. Look, look how he opens his book. Right now, now we're talking, this is already the manuscripts from 1477. He's writing this in the 13th century. What does he say? Praise God, the Lord of our father, Abraham. This is how he opens, right? This, it reminds us of the first benediction. Due to the length of the exile and the magnitude of disasters that the traditions of prayer have changed in every country. The majority of people pray before the creator, trying to find their way in the dark. They don't understand the words they utter. Nor do they know the order of its traditions or their reasoning. Everyone wanders the forest of tradition in a perplexed manner. The gates of prayer have been shut. No one enters and no one leaves its rooms. And whence I saw that the gates of prayer had been closed and few knew to explain it, I felt the need to write this book. So this, this is we're, we're talking the Middle Ages. Right, the, the medieval era where we have the first book that comes to explain. The Talmud doesn't do this. The Talmud focuses on what you're meant to say. And it gives you these snippets. Rav Amram Gaon comes and writes, this is the order. We now know what we, what we need to say. We don't know why we say it. So Jews get lost. And then comes the Abudrum. You know, this is such an important text. Um, you know that there was an attempt to open a, to start a, a printing press in North Africa uh, we, we usually know of the printing presses that start in North Africa. It's very late. It's like 19th century uh, in Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. But there was actually an attempt to start a printing press in Fez, in Morocco, in the 16th century, like way early. And you know what they wanted to print? What was the first book they wanted to print? Abu Drum. Because that's what you need. You need to understand what you're saying. So this, this is a huge, huge moment. And, and when we close here, our first part that we said we want to do, sort of how this book evolves, we understand that, that firstly, this started with nothing. This started with intimate words that were uttered. It also started as a, as a congregational activity that slowly became also, you know, the, the place for the individual. Again, think back to the craftsman. We don't yet know why he's a craftsman, why, why the Baal Shem Tov chose to tell us he's making socks. But we understand there's this interplay between praying in a quorum with, with the community and playing, praying by yourself in solitude. Let's move on now to, now, now that we understand a little bit about, you know, we have this equilibrium. So we know now there's no book. There are many books. There are many different variations. And we understand a little bit about the history, which is important. Um, let's now try and understand how certain prayers come about. Now, again, in the time that we have, you know, if we had a year, we, you know, if we decided we're going to take a year now to study the prayer book, we could go prayer by prayer and we really change ourselves. We have, you know, we have a bit less than an hour. So we're going to, I've chosen specific prayers that I want to try and tell this story of how they came about, because then we discover that the Jew, that the prayer book is one of the best places to understand and to learn Jewish history. We usually look at a prayer book as, as, as a book that is, that is meant to guide us in meditation but our meditation is part and parcel where we're coming from and where we're headed. So the first one I, I chose, it's an interesting one, is uh, the benediction against informers, the minim. 
So let, let's first read. So this is again in our climax, the 18, the, the, the Amida, the 18 blessings, which are actually 19. Here's one of them. For the slanderers, let there be no hope. And may all the wickedness perish in an instant. May all your people's enemies swiftly be cut down. Remember, this is what we say silently, and then the Chazan says out loud. May you swiftly uproot, crush, cast down, and humble the arrogant swiftly in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who destroys enemies and humbles the arrogant. Now, we might read this prayer as part of what we do. And when we get to the to the to the concluding story with Rabbi Nachman, we'll understand the problem with the way we pray. Um, but you know, we we read this, but but how often do we ask ourselves, what is the story behind this? And then how does this change the way we pray? Do we know for you know there's this common misconception that this blessing is the 19th? There are 19 benedictions, that this is the 19th. It's not true. The 19th is a tzemach, et tzemach, the sort of you know, waiting for, for David to come. This was actually in the, the initial 18. What's the story here? At the time when Jews are starting to pray and synagogues are becoming a thing, there are also Jews that are slowly being known as, you know, those that follow Jesus. And at that time, before there is this clear-cut differentiation, Jews and those that believe in something else are in the same congregation. They're all saying Shema. They're all saying the 18 benedictions. And then Rabban Gamliel comes and says, no, 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 we, we, we can't do this. We need to differentiate. This is a big problem. And he says, someone needs to create a benediction that clearly differ, that, that will, not an, will not allow those that are going to become Christian to be here. Why? Because there are contradictions, because there's a problem, because the, 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 the one God you believe in and then and, and, and Jesus, and that's is it very different. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't pray for that. It, it doesn't go together. And, and so this benediction comes about as this one of the first major rifts in Jewish history. And it tells the story of the birth of Christianity. Because once you create such a prayer, and by the way, remember I said we we're all sitting in the congregation, you have the one person that's saying everything at the start. So usually what happened though was or what we're told is that when everyone, you know, said the first benediction, the second, you know, people were sort of listening in, zoning in, zoning out, you know, talking business. But when we got to this benediction, everyone listened very, very carefully to understand if the chazan, the leader of the prayer, is with them or with us. And oy vavoy, if you changed a word in what was said here. And another thing, some variations of this used to have the word Christian. But it was erased, right? Once there are Christians, and it's then erased because of censorship, because once Jews are uh, 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 banished and exiled, and you have Christian censors, you know, you, this sort of benediction is problematic. So it becomes, you know, the, the informers and the slanderers. It becomes very vague who are these people. But the point is, here we have, and this is just a drop in the ocean of, of one prayer that we say. Do we know what we're saying? And, and does this make us curious to go in and understand more of these and even compare different prayer books and to see what's happened throughout time. And we'll see, we'll see such a moment. So this, this is our first one, our sort of, you know, how this prayer came about. And by the way, one more thing to conclude, when Rabban Gamliel has to choose a person to compile this, right, this is a very different, this is a very difficult benediction to compile because there's a lot of hatred here. So he has to choose the right person to come up with the right wording. 
And who does he choose? Shmuel Katan. And why does he and why does he choose Shmuel Katan? Because we know from um, Pirkei Avod, Ethics of the Fathers, the what does Shmuel Katan say? Bin follow When your enemies are falling, don't rejoice. Rabban Gamliel says, that's my guy. That's the person I need. This humble person that, that, that doesn't have a, a bone of hatred in his body, he needs to write this because he understands this is not about hatred. It's about prayer. And it's about creating this the right way. And so I want to choose him. So there's so much packed into just these, these few lines. Let's move on. So, so what we just saw is a moment where prayer comes about around the Talmudic time. We're now jumping 1,200 years later, or a little bit less. Now, Kaddish, we've all heard of Kaddish. So there are two kinds of Kaddish, right? Kaddish will be praise God. Kaddish is, has always been said. It used to be said as a one-liner, Yeheshmi Rabbah. The first Kaddish was a one-liner that essentially said the same thing, right? In the Talmud, we have this idea of God is great. This is just amazing God. And then at some point, you know, throughout until the 10th century, we suddenly have this, this tradition where it, it grows towards what we know it to be today. And it's now said in two instances. We also say it in part of prayer to say how great God is. And we say it at funerals. We say it at funerals because the moment we are most, we are most sad, we are most devastated. We remind ourselves that God is great. But this is not the start of mourners, Kaddish. Mourner's Kaddish, that you say for 12 months, does not start until the 12th century. It doesn't start until the Crusaders. It doesn't start, and it starts in Ashkenaz, you know, Regensburg, other areas where you have the Crusaders heading off to Israel, and they are chopping down Jew after Jew, village after village, huge massacres. Schwer, any, if you know any last name, any Jews today called Shapira, Spire, they all come from Shver. They all come from a place where, where there are very few that survive. And then in, in Ashkenaz, it is for the first time where Jews say, you know, they go through this, this, this horrific trauma. They take what we know to say at funerals and they connect it to a saying in the Talmud that the soul, to protect it not from going you know, to hell for these 12 delicate months, you need to do something. We're going to say Kaddish, and it's going to be mourners Kaddish. All those that lost all their family, the Crusaders and Ashkenaz, they're going to start saying Kaddish for 12 months. This is the start of mourners Kaddish. Now, why is this so fascinating? Why is this so profound? Because it's Ashkenazi. It's not Moroccan. It's not Iraqi. It's Ashkenaz. And yet, Every single prayer book on earth adopts mourners Kaddish. Why? Because everyone relates. Not a single Jew in exile does not feel, has not gone through this pogrom or that. No one's here to compare who went through a bigger tragedy. It is miraculous. It is, it is mind-boggling, and because we'll get in a moment to moments of friction and tension. It is mind-boggling that, that when it comes to this, it's spread. And, it, you know, Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Kabbalists and the philosophers and everyone's on board and says, no, no, this has to spread. Everyone has to do this. 
So if our first prayer that comes about, this, this sort of, you know, the, the benediction of the informers, is very telling of the first rift of what really creates, if you like, Judaism, and even contributes to the creation of Christianity. This, this second moment of Mourner's Kaddish is very telling of a very tragic element in Jewish history in the diaspora and the exile. And it sticks from 12th century on. Now, since we, we, we stopped in Germany, we'll continue in Germany to one more moment. So we, I, I've given you now two examples of what has been added. Added as a result of a certain social, anthropological, theological need. Now let's look at moments or one moment where things are omitted. So we have the birth of Reform Judaism in, uh, 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 right, and, and the first Reform prayer book before your eyes, printed in Hamburg, 1819. So it's very interesting. You, you want to know what Reform Judaism is about. Don't go read Avram Geiger. Open the prayer book. See what he kept in. See what he kept out. What's taken out, right? We want emancipation. We want a universal Judaism. We are looking to stay in Germany. Even though Jews, we still know of Jews that not long ago in the time of Moses Mendelssohn, the only way they can get into Berlin is through the gate in which pigs go into Berlin. Despite that, things are changing in Germany, emancipation. But if we want this freedom, if we want to be Jews living amongst non-Jews freely so that we can show them the light, so that we can do what the prophets wanted us to do, there's a certain prayer we have to take out of the prayer book. All the little bits that say go back to Israel, because that, that doesn't help show that you're, that you're a faithful citizen. Now, this is fascinating because what this means is that if you're a young Jew or even a non-Jew that, that opens a prayer book, and through this you learn how to connect to God, notice how particular. All of a sudden, you are told that you are indoctrinated, right? That unlike, much like every prayer book, you are indoctrinated like this is not part of the, the, the game. We, we, we are not talking about that anymore. Now, this created quite a bit of a, you know, a big deal in Germany. And so now we're moving to the 50s. Around 1850, uh, we have a huge convention amongst lots of rabbis, many reform rabbis. And for two whole days, Professor George Kohler wrote a great article about this. Uh, for two whole days... They're now wondering, do we keep also the bits about Messiah? You know, because Messiah is very particular and it's sort of competing with, you know, their Messiah. And, you know, and there are voices that say we've got to take Messiah out. But one of the voices in this two-day convention say, we're not here to decide over the prayer book that Ashkenazi Jews are going to say from today and on. But we're also trying to talk about what Jews in general should be saying. Who are we to take out something like Messiah? And they don't. You know, and it becomes this, you know, you can talk about this universal salvation, partly like what the Hasidic movement tried to do. And, and but, but the point is here in our third stop, we see here how there are bits that are being omitted. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because it's very telling of what's happening, the evolution of Jewish history, of the Jewish people in different uh, uh, geographies and different uh, places. In much the same way, if we now rewind a little bit so depending on which prayer book you have at home i don't know um one of the in some versions right ashkenaz for example you have at the very start there are a few songs we say 
right? We say, and one of the songs we say is right? Great is the living God. Now, this is fascinating. When did this strata appear? Can you hear the echoes of, of Aristotle in he has neither bodily form nor substance? Jews in the Talmud don't talk like this. They're, they're, they're not concerned with, uh, you know, this is, this is Aristotelian. This is Maimonides. Maimonides, after the rational, the philosophical revolution, 12th century, he says, guess what? Jews believe in something. There are 13 things they believe in. Their resurrection of the dead, Messiah, da, 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 da. And based on these 13 pillars of faith, we have this, this, we have this song. And this is fascinating. It means that it, right? Rav Amram Gaon, 8th eight, century, the, the first compilation of what the Siddha looks like. Aristotle hasn't, hasn't worked his magic yet on the Jewish people. 400 years later, it starts creeping in. And this explains, by the way, why in some Sidurim, in some prayer books, it appears at the start, and some, we, we, can't, we can't begin with this. You want an example of someone that was, a, you, do you know who is the, the most famous example of someone who opposed this? Biari. So Reb Chaim Vital, 16th century Tzfat, the, the Kabbalistic revolution of, of, of Rabbi Isaac Luria, uh, his pupil, Reb Chaim Vital, explains to us in Shara Kavanot, the sort of, you know, the gate of intention, how to pray. This is the essence. Listen to what he says. I now will write the prayer that I received from my master. So you'll know what the Ari said and you'll be able to say the same. But this is how he starts. He has a message, the party line, the Kabbalistic party line. But first I must write of a matter which my master taught me regarding the songs composed by later generations, the songs at the start. Know that my master said none of these. For these did not know the path of Kabbalah and do not know what they speak of, especially when it comes to great is the living Igdal Eloim Cha. So what's the Ari saying, right? Because Kabbalists are revolutionaries, but, but the Ari saying, if, Ravam, if it's not in Ravam Ram's Gaon Siddur, I'm not interested. And yet, now you might come to say, wait, so Kabbalists didn't add their own? Of course they added. If you open many prayer books in Sfirada Omer, right now we're counting of the Omer, it's fascinating that the sort of little paragraph that starts the counting of the Omer, Leshem Yichud, it's pure Kabbalah. So Kabbalists also added their own. But what the Ari is trying to say here is, since when did Aristotle creep into our, this is how I read it, since when did Aristotle creep into our prayer book? I'm not saying this. And, and if we think of, right, one of the fascinating things about, about the prayer book is that it's like, it's the one shawl that accepts everyone. A prayer book is like the ideal shawl. It has the Kabbalists, the philosophers, the believers, the atheists, you name it, right? What is, what is prayer for Maimonides? One of the problems for Maimonides, I, I can't remember, there, there are some scholars that dealt, you know, one of the fascinating paradoxes about Maimonides and prayer is on the one hand, Maimonides tells us you need to pray, right? Mishneh Torah, he explains to us, a Jew has to pray. We know this, the Talmud taught us, you need to pray. But when you read the Guide of the Perplexed, you understand that it's heresy to praise God because we are finite beings. What do we, we are insulting God if we think that we can praise God. And moreover, who do we think is listening? Right, the Maimonidean God is not a God that's listening to the actual words you're saying, which makes you wonder what's the purpose of prayer. How do we deal with this contradiction? 
One of the answers is to look into Maimonides' biography. That when the greatest tragedies appears in his life, his brother drowning, other things happening, he always goes to fasting and prayer. The two can live together despite the, the, the seeming contradiction. But, 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 but despite that, there are these philosophical undertones of who is listening and they creep into the, into, the, into the book, into the prayer book. And all the while we have other prayers that sneak in that, that believe that in essence, do you want to know what your prayer does? God is dynamic and there is Shechina, there is Malchut. And when you pray, your words ascending the feminine aspect of God that is looking after this earth and all other worlds, you are able to send her on her journey up to cleave to God and come down impregnated after her union with the masculine aspect of God, the true union to come down and, and spread abundance. Would Maimonides ever say prayers that are based on these passages? We all do. Do you know which one we say? Do you know what is the latest, the last strata? And here we're going to conclude this part before we, we, we conclude. Do you know what is the last bit of, of, of the latest bit of the prayer book? Kabbalat Shabbat. A bit that we all know. We all know. And it's 16th century. No one says the prayer of Kabbalat Shabbat before the 16th century. Do you even know that in Talmudic times, when prayer began, we didn't even pray Friday night. It then slowly becomes a prayer that we say certain blessings. Kiddush, by the way, is very old. But Kabbalat Shabbat, come my beloved to greet the bride. Let us welcome the Sabbath. Would Maimonides say this? This is fascinating. Kabbalat Shabbat, accepted unanimously across the board. And this is purely talking about what Rabbi Moses Cordovero is teaching us in Shur Koma, the purpose of prayer is all about the dynamics between the Shekhinah, the Malchut going up and down, its union with God and our union with God. That, that, that's, that's, that's what it's about. And this is so different. Okay, I, I'm going to conclude now and reach the final bit, what I want to leave us with, because we'll have some time for questions. I'm so sorry, Alex. I'm just going to hop a few more minutes. Um, so we've looked at the, the evolution of the prayer book, you know, the little that we can. And we've then looked at a snippet of how some prayer, prayers have come about and how they're very telling of Jewish history. And they might even give us the appetite to go back and, and search for more prayers and perhaps the ones that we relate to and, and what they can teach us and perhaps help us connect better, maybe even compile some prayers. The last bit I really want to sort of focus, this is because prayer is meditation, how we climb this ladder of meditation, right? what this looks like. And here I want to focus on what we start saying in every single prayer book, a peak that we reach and how we end and, and what we can do in terms of meditation with this. So in 16th century, again, very late, um, there is a, a Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Moshe ben Makir. So he's sort of like the Ari has passed away, Rabbi Yosef Karo, he's a few years later. And in 1599 in Venice, so this is late in the game, he publishes a book called Daily Routine. And why, what is the purpose of daily routine? He says, right, this is part of Musar, part of ethics. He says, you know, we don't want to waste time. This, by the way, this book, if you ask me, is one of the first coaching books in Jewish history. This is where coaching starts. Rabbi Moshe ben Makir is a coacher. And he says, coaching begins with understanding not to waste any moment. And what you are meant to do from the moment you awake to the moment you sleep, Shabbos, festivals, throughout the whole year. So, so it's interesting 
how this guy begins his day. And guess what he tells us? He tells us 16th century does not appear before that. And when he awakes, he should immediately say every person, I thank you, living and eternal king, for giving me back my soul in mercy. Great is your faithfulness. So much gets lost here in translation. Do you see the difference if you're thinking about meditating in Western language, starting with I? It's all about me. And in Hebrew, mode, thank. First mode, then only ani, lefanecha. Now, he's telling us, the moment you wake up, you haven't even washed your hands. He's crafted this prayer so carefully, he hasn't even written the name of God, so you're able to say this while you're still impure and you haven't washed your hands when you woke up. He's thought of everything here. He's made it brief so that even if you're, you know, hungover, you still remember this. Now, if we connect this, I have to, Rabbi Yosef Karo, when he compiles the Shulchan Aruch, right, what it means to be a Jew and what mitzvahs were meant to keep, how does he start the Shulchan Aruch? He says, whenever every Jew wakes up in the morning, you are meant to wake up and roar like a lion. And I think Rabbi Moshe ben Makir is thinking of Rabbi Yosef Karo when he writes this and says, you're meant to wake up. So tomorrow after this lesson, we wake up in the morning, you know, forgive our spouses, mode, and, and, and this is what he's thinking of, mode. This is, the, this is the frequency that we are starting our day with. Start with thanks. And then we're lifting off. We're, we're, now we're a liftoff. And then we reach a climatic point, which we all know. This is somewhere in the middle. Shema Israel. Now, what is so amazing? But So once we start with thanks, the very climax, just before the 18 benedictions, is where we are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Again, in Hebrew, Bechol Me'odecha. Bechol Me'odecha is not with all your might. There is so much that gets lost in translation because Me'odecha is not might. Me'odecha is your everything. It is, it is all-encompassing. There is nothing that Me'odecha does not have. And much like Mode'ani, then Bechol Me'odi. I'm, this is subordination. Once you start with thanks, the peak is complete coronation, subordination to the one God. And then how do we conclude? We're about to go into the streets. We're about to start our business, our day. And, and you know, it's funny because Aleinu Shabach, the last prayer, you know, I, I'm sure in your synagogue, everyone says this very slowly, but there are synagogues where the last prayer is said, you know, rather, you know, it's, everyone says this quite quickly because you, 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 you know, you, you're about to leave, you're done, you've got your talus off, you're halfway out. There was a Moroccan rabbi in the 19th century, Rabbi David ben Shimon, that says you, you, you've missed the point. Do you know who wrote this? Do you know who wrote Alenu Shabach? None other than Joshua when he brought the Israelites into Israel. Joshua himself, according to Rabbi David ben Shimon and others before him say Joshua compiles this prayer. And why does he want you to finish and read it ever so carefully and slowly? Why does he want you to finish with this? For the final words. Because God, Lord, shall be one and his name is one. You're going to start your day. You're going to get an annoying email. You're going to get a compliment. There are things you're going to get done and things that aren't going to get done. Are you connecting all the dots? Are you aware that the very entity that you thanked, that you are completely in submission to, is everywhere around you? 
Are you thinking about this, meditating with this before you start your day? Now, what I've done here in a nutshell, and then I'll conclude with a half a minute little thing with Rabbi Nachman, is it, it's a, it's not even a suggestion. It's more like when I think of prayer and I think of how, how I sort of bring it down to a nutshell of, you know, like a, a mental practice, an exercise for each of us. Sort of what are those bits that, you know, how does our meditation look like? Our prayer look like? What are those different things, you know, that then then the idea more than anything is not to, you know, oh, let, let's focus on this. But but what are the things that you find that you, you want to focus on? We started with, with the Baal Shem Tov with a very ambiguous story that, that you know, is about a Jew that goes, prays, makes socks, felt socks, you know. But now let's go to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, now we're going to forget everything we've just learned. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, you know, he was big on hitbodidut, seclusion, right? Go to the woods, go to the, 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 the top of your building, find a place where no one else is around and talk to God. Freestyle. Seclusion, no minion, no quorum. Unlike the guy in the Baal Shem Tov story, freestyle, by yourself, yell out, be free, say whatever you want in whatever language you speak. So his chassidim, his, his disciples ask him, you know, but, but wait, he says, don't get me wrong. The, the Talmud tells us to pray, you have to pray. But here's the problem with the prayer book I don't want you to forget. Do you know where bandits and pirates are lurking? In the main drag. That's where all the gold goes by. The easiest, best place for a pirate to capture everything, all the treasures you want to pass on from one place to another is the main drag. It's where the most traffic goes by. In much the same way, when you open this text that you are commanded to read, he says, I know that each and every one of you get lost at moments. It becomes, you know, repetition. We read speedily and quickly. And, and those are the bandits that are interrupting you. And there's a lot of disruption. And, and, and then are you even praying? You're doing what you're meant to. But so you, you, you need to go off the beaten track. You need to, in addition to reading the prayer book, go in your own path. Right, the, the path not taken, as one would say, do, do what you feel. Forget everything you've just said because things have gotten lost because the pirates are there to try and get you. So, so this, this is our story. We've, we've tried to make some sense of, of the prayer book, of, of sort of a bit of its evolution of these, these you know, pinnacle moments, milestones, and then trying to look in how we can find a way to meditate. We've heard two very different stories. You know, can we or can't we reconcile between them or make sense? Um, we have a bit of time for questions or comments. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Schnitzer. Um, yes, I don't want to take up um, more time than I need to, but we do have a few minutes left if anyone would like to um, ask a question or make a comment. Um, hi, Lauren, and then Aglaya. Hi. Um, I, I have the Koran Moxer for Yom Yerushalayim, Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And what I've been waiting for is, I think, long past due, oops, sorry, that's my cat walking on me, um, is an Ohanisim to be written and used extensively on uh, Yom uh, Yerushalayim and Yom Hatzma'ut. Have you seen anything like that? Has anybody talked about it? Because those days are real mummish miracles. Very, very interesting. So a story that comes to mind is uh, uh, perhaps to explain why it hasn't happened yet um, is... Um, you know, Soloveitchik, Rav Soloveitchik, who, you know, was very, you know, pro-Israel, you know, big believer in, uh, you know, independence, Yom Atzmaut, 
So a story I was once told is that he couldn't bring himself to say Yalevi Avon because it's such a, you know, who, who am I to add this, right? There, there were the sages, the Tanaim and the Talmudists that added, you know, that it's a bit like what the Arizal was saying. They knew what they were doing. And it's this, so there are these voices that say, you know, humility and like that there's a lot of burden and responsibility in adding something. And yet, as we've seen today, there are so, like, think of Rabbi Moshe ben Makir. He added this moderni lefanecha that we all know, we're all sure it goes back to the Talmud. It's so beautifully phrased. And yet it was a moment of understanding this has to be added. So we have this kind of, on the one hand, these revolutionaries that understand something has to be added and the others that, that, that coming from a very similar place, but it's very, very difficult. So, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and who will be the first or where that happens. That's, that's a fascinating point, really. Thank you for that, Lauren. Uh, Agalia? Hi. <laughs> okay, so this is gonna, I'm gonna do this as fast as I can, okay? So I'm a person who, you know, I read all of the time. I'm like always reading and everything. So, but I noticed, so for one thing, um, there was, um, a rabbi was leading us through a meditation, um, an Amidah meditation, and, you know, she was singing for us and then we were supposed to like, you know, kind of let our minds see whatever it was that we were supposed to see now. In my case, so like I saw a lot of really cool stuff though. Like, so for me though, it was a, like, it was a really good experience though. However, though, I can also see an experience like that, um, showing people things that, um, you know, in their subconscious that they might not want to see. So what would we speak to? How would we speak to something like that for like when we're talking about, well, people get lost and they go through the motions when they're going through a prayer book and everything. However, though, it might, it's like safe to go through a prayer book it's not always safe to go and say what you're thinking to God. So. You could even argue that, you know, today with this idea of triggering certain thoughts being triggered, a lot of thought, you know, like a lot of thought was put into how to slowly build. And even when certain prayers were added and what was accepted, you know, there's a lot to be said when certain prayers, as we saw with Monas Kandish or with Moderni, when they're accepted across the board, unlike others. You know, and this idea that you do have this safe place even when you say certain things, you only say them after you've been through a very certain journey. That only then it's safe. So I think that's a fascinating point. Again, especially today, uh, uh, with you know being very careful of certain things that cannot can't or you know how they affect people. And yeah, and again, think of Rabbi Nachman. What did Rabbi Nachman say? Rabbi Nachman says, "Go do it by yourself." But he's saying, "Don't, don't escape from the other one." In a way, Rabbi Nachman's saying that that's your jumping board. You know, it's not starting to compile your new thing and based on that, say those things. And based on that, perhaps they're echoing, you know, and then and, and that's where you're that's where you're going. So the fascinating point, really. Thank you so much, Dr. Schnitzer, for being here with us today. It's always a pleasure to learn with you. And thank you so much for being here today. Have a great rest of your day. Much shalom, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.